Hello and welcome. You are listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agriculture literacy discussion. This podcast is hosted by me, Will Fett from Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation. Throughout this season, we'll be joined by friends of Agriculture in the Classroom from across the country as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. Hello and welcome to this episode of Outstanding in Their Field. My name is Will Fett and I'll be your host for today's episode. With me today are Jared and Sherry Baker, who have a unique opportunity to feature one of their students in a book, the My Family's Pig Farm book. But today we want to learn more about their operation and uh, get to know them a little bit more about how they raise pigs. Jared and Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Jared, let's start with you. Can you give us kind of an overview of the uh, family operation and a little bit of the history of the farm? Yeah. So Sherry and I both grew up on hog farms, Sherry in Southwest Iowa and myself in Dyke, Iowa, where we currently reside. We have a 90 sow show pig operation that we run with our family and then my brother's family. That uh, entity falls under Baker Brothers Genetics. And then uh, we also, Sherry and I own a 2,400 head wean to finish barn that we contract feed for a producer. And we also row crop farm. So that's uh, the extent of, of our operation uh, up here in Dyke. Perfect. So for our non-ag listeners, tell us what a show pig operation is. What exactly are you doing with that? So with the show pig operation, we focus on selling pigs to 4-H and FFA kids across the country. And those kids then take their pigs and they show them at their various county fairs, state fairs, national type shows where their pigs are evaluated by a judge. That's what we focus on then is selling uh, those pigs to junior exhibitors, 4-H and FFA kids. Perfect. I imagine that you're kind of focused on the genetics side of it a little bit more closely when you're trying to develop those show pigs. Yeah, yeah. We try to follow trends as close as we can and and you want a good genetic base and and you're always looking for the strongest and best genetics that are available. So definitely stay uh, really in tune with the genetic side of that and how we think those pigs can perform. Perfect. And so the other half of your operation is wean to finish. What does that mean? So in a wean-to-finish barn, we get those pigs in at 21 days old when they are weaned from their mother. We take care of them, grow them up until they are ready for market at 290 to 300 pounds. And that's on a contract basis. So we own the facility and everything that uh, goes physically into the facility. And then the uh, farmer that we feed for owns the pigs and he, he's responsible for everything that goes into the pigs. And then he pays us for our labor and for our expense of the building. Perfect. So you are basically doing everything except farrowing. You don't have sows and, and baby piglets. You get them in at 21 days, like you said. Correct. That 21-day uh, pig comes in. They have just left their mother. We grow them you know, through that nursery stage, then on up to, to marketing. So we're responsible from essentially from start to finish of that pig's life. 
Great. And Jared, can you give us an idea? What's your educational background or professional training? How did you kind of fall into these operations? So like I said earlier, Sherry and I both grew up on hog farms. We met at Iowa State University where we both got a bachelor's degree. Mine was in animal science and Sherry can talk about hers, but it was ag communications. When I left Iowa State, was looking for an opportunity in the swine industry, found a off-the-farm job within the swine industry, and just kind of built our operation on the side from there. So I should also mention, I do work off the farm as well for a company called uh, Fast Genetics, where we concentrate on selling female pigs, gilts, to different producers and farmers. So that's kind of the quick history of, of my background. Excellent. So a lot of different pieces to the puzzle there. Sherry, I would love to hear more about your uh, professional training background then, ag communications. Yes. So I grew up on, my dad actually raised show pigs exclusively in Southwest Iowa. He had about a hundred sows and then he farmed about 120 acres. Jared and I met at Iowa State. I have a bachelor's degree in agricultural communications I have worked for a few different operations. So I worked at a co-op where I sold seed and worked with farmers on their crop inputs. And then I currently work off the farm at the Iowa State University Extension and Outreach Office in Grundy County. I work there part-time and then help on the farm in my other hours. So I've raised hogs my whole life. The Wean to Finish building was new to me when I married Jared. He had had some work experience on that side of the industry. But we've learned a lot in the last four years since we built our building and put that operation into uh, our entire farming operation. Very interesting. I'd love to hear what, what are some of those things that you've learned over the last four years as you've gone full steam into this wean to fitness operation? Yep. So I grew up on an exclusive show pig farm operation. And when you're raising show pigs, you are genetically selecting for hogs that are phenotypically what the industry is striving for. So we look for hogs that are sound and can move their feet and legs well. Their muscle patterns are a little different. And so we select genetically for just a different side of hog production. So some of the things that I have learned since um, being introduced to the wean to finish side is just being able to select those genetic lines for growth and for good mothering abilities. On the wean to finish side, they select for different things to get the number of market hogs to the market to be able to feed America in the most efficient way possible. That's interesting. And I imagine there's a little bit of a difference between your show pig operation. I'm guessing that focuses a little bit more on pure breeds, whereas your wean to finish operation really focuses on the quality animal, so not necessarily breed specific. Is, is that kind of right? Yeah, so there's a lot of niche markets with purebreds on the show pig side. So actually right now in Iowa, especially, there's a big focus on the Iowa Purebred Swine Association has donated a significant amount of money to 4-H and FFA kids who want to show purebreds that were bred here in the state of Iowa and that they show them at state fair and those kids can earn scholarships to put back toward their project and to continue to, to grow and show pigs and be involved in the swine industry. So there's definitely more of a opportunity for purebred breeds there. And then on the commercial side, a lot of the, Jared can speak more to this, but a lot of the genetics do come from purebreds, but they're bred up into crossbreds. So they use those purebreds for different genetic selection. Can you kind of give us an idea? What does a day on the farm look like? What kind of tasks are involved? What's your role and responsibility? What would we experience if we visited your farm? 
So it kind of depends on the time of year. Currently, we're in January. January is a big farrowing season for us on the show pig operation side. So my day would consist of going out and checking on the farrowing house. And the farrowing house is where we keep the sows who are having their babies. So I would go out and check on the babies, see if any of the moms are in labor, if they need any help, feed them, take care of them, make sure the babies are all doing okay, and see if they need any additional support. And then we also have our kids' show pig barn at our place. So going and feeding those animals and checking on them. Then after school, the kids would go out and work with their projects, brushing them down and walking them and getting them ready for shows all throughout the year. Uh, We also have our sows who are not having babies in an indoor facility so that they are protected from the hot and cold weather here that we have in Iowa. And so going and taking care of them a couple times a day and feeding them, making sure that they're all doing okay and checking on our second farrowing house at that operation. And then throughout the day, either Jared or I would take care of our wean to finish building as well. So making sure that those pigs all have feed and water, anything that is having troubles is taken care of and and those needs are addressed as well. It really does seem like a, a family operation. Jared, can you speak to that genetic aspect that Sherry mentioned? Sherry talked about the show pig side and the focus on having some purebreds and focusing on a few different traits, I guess, compared to what we'd find in our wean to finish barn. On the wean to finish side, purebreds are are used, but they're used more at the nucleus level. If you think of it like a big triangle, almost like the food pyramid, you got the nucleus at the top, which would be your purebred level. Move down, the next level would be your first cross to make your females. The third level would be the third cross, which would be the market hogs that we raise and, and send to market. So the big push in the industry uh, right now is using a purebred Duroc boar, which would be a red boar with down floppy ears. And I would say today, probably 60% of the hogs in the U.S. are sired by a red purebred Duroc boar. And the focus on that is for their ability to grow fast and efficiently, and then a meat quality aspect that that breed is known to have. So purebreds are still influential on the uh, commercial side or in our wean to finish barn. They're probably just a a generation or two removed from being 100% pure. And I can imagine that the technology that you're implementing with all of these genetics is pretty significant and definitely changed from what the industry looked like maybe 50 years ago. Can you give us an idea of what some of the other technology and innovation pieces that you're implementing are? So the uh, company that I work for, Fast Genetics, when we make mating decisions, you know, a lot of these pigs are genomed at birth in the nucleus. We get their genome, send them off, have them analyzed, and they're actually picking out boars that they're going to use to sire market pigs before they're even weaned off of the sow. So it's really quite impressive the way that they use genomics in the breeding side, EBVs, estimated breeding values, and EPDs, which would be estimated progency difference. A lot of terms I throw around there, but they're all really done at the genomic level of the pig before that pig's ever even weaned from its mother. And using those numbers to make mating decisions to make the most efficient and productive pig uh, that we possibly can, that obviously is something very, very different over the last, even the last 10 years, has been a huge game changer in the breeding side of making these pigs uh, more productive and more efficient. So FAST also is working on and, and has the only patent for sex-sorted sperm in the pig industry. It's used very widely in the cattle industry, but FAST has uh, the only patent on it in the pig industry. 
and we're using that in our nucleus level to make more gilts, more females, and then there's just all sorts of different avenues you could go with that technology. So things are extremely different compared to 50 years ago when we'd go out and throw the boar in and come back three weeks later and take him out and, and raise our pigs and call it good. Everything is done on a much larger scale in terms of numbers and then in terms of the technology that, that we are using. But it sounds like you're being very intentional and purposeful with your management decisions. As you mentioned, sex-sorted semen. So you're actually looking at those XY chromosomes and, and making management decisions based on the product that you want to get at the end, correct? Yeah, yep, that's exactly right. You could theoretically get into if we go down the path in the future of no castration being allowed, for example. That's a huge game changer. You can't really have a barn full of boars and expect them to be a good quality meat that you want your consumers to eat. So you can use that sex-sorted sperm to have a barn full of gilts, which then takes the castration aspect out of it. Or flip that around if you want a barn full of barrows because your system's based off of throughput and, and barrows naturally grow faster. You know, you take that element of of the female side, the gilt side out of your, out of your finishing barn. So like you said, we'll very intentional on what we're doing and, and how we want to do it and very laser focused. That's so interesting to think about how you want specific genetics for growth and efficiency. You want specific gender of your animals. Obviously, consumers are a big piece of the puzzle. But if we think about who our future consumers are, largely those are the students who are in classrooms right now. What do you think our students need to learn and know when they do get out in the real world? Why do you think it's important for them to understand agriculture? So uniquely, and I was just visiting with somebody about this the other day, I think that the show pig industry and the wean to finish or the commercial side can really work together. The agricultural industry in general, I think will have a workforce shortage and we already do in some places. Everybody's neighbor doesn't have a hog farm or doesn't have a farm that they live on and have that real world experience. We don't have as many kids with that everyday day-to-day knowledge of working on a hog farm. So I really think that the show pig industry is important in terms of getting our kids involved. You know, even Tommy that lives in town that wants to have a pig and try showing at his county fair, just from having that experience, he's going to learn and maybe gain an interest in the ag industry. And even if he doesn't go into production agriculture, he'll go into the industry as a feed sales rep or go in and sell genetics, or there's just so many avenues that they can go into. And those are places that we need people who have a passion and who are driven to continue to improve the industry who may not be able to be in production agriculture. So I think that if the two industries can work together and continue to support each other, there are ways that they can do that. You know, on the finishing side, as we go from everybody having 30 sows and raising them from the beginning and clear to finishing to the types of buildings like we have that are 2,400 head in that building, I think that keeping kids interested and keeping them knowledgeable about what goes on their plate and how the animals are raised uh, will be of utmost importance. That's awesome. And we actually had an opportunity to work with you to develop one of those educational resources, our My Family's Pig Farm book. How do you see resources like that being utilized by teachers and to help our students? So through my job at the Extension Office, I'm also able to do our farm chat program in Grundy County. Each month, I take an iPad out to a different type of farm in Grundy County, and I actually Zoom with the students in the third grades in the schools in our county. 
So we have used those books to give to the students before we actually do the interaction with the farmer, and then they get a little bit of background. We've also worked with our Ag in the Classroom coordinator to do some hands-on education, and then we do the Zoom, and they're able to ask intelligent and timely questions of the farmers while we do those farm chats. They get a little bit of background, and they're able to use those to kind of have a place to start because, you know, even in our small community, we have a, a relatively small school system. And the majority of those kids still have never been on a farm. So, you know, I think it's really important that we keep that connection so that they're receiving information directly from the farmers and not necessarily receiving misinformation from non-educational resources. And you talk about Farm Chat, which is our brand name for basically a virtual field trip where you're connecting a farmer to a classroom. Lots of reasons to do that. It eliminates the travel time of students, but also from a liability and safety perspective that you might not want to have a classroom of students at your barn for the student safety. But then can you maybe speak to biosecurity issues or concerns from the producer side of it? Why doesn't everybody get the chance to tromp through a swine barn? Yeah, so pigs can get sick just like people can. And similar to when we have new babies at the hospital and we don't just let everybody come in and touch them and potentially spread germs, we do the same with our animals when they come into the barns. So those babies are susceptible to several diseases that could be catastrophic to their health. And so we want to make sure that when people come in, they haven't been to other hog buildings because those diseases can be transferred from one building to the other. So we we have them put on plastic boots. They walk into our office and change their clothes into clean clothes that have been in our building before. And then we do have shower in and shower out in our buildings so that they're able to get all of our pig dust off of them before they would leave and head to another building or head back into their car. So there's just a lot of disease transfer that can happen. You know, even things you don't think about walking through your co-op office after somebody else who has hog buildings has walked through there. And then those shoes could potentially have something with contamination on them, which I think is really relevant in the era of COVID here lately. We're all learning a little bit about cross-contamination and how we can stop diseases from spreading. So hog farmers have been doing that for many years, you know, everything from feed trucks who come on our property who disinfect their wheels to the trucks that come and load pigs or unload pigs disinfecting in between farms to the producers and any visitors cleaning themselves and making sure we're wearing plastic boots and the right clothes when we enter and leave those buildings. Perfect. Jared, can you maybe give us an idea of what does that entire process look like? We talked a little bit about wean to finish, but where do the animals go after and how do they end up being bacon at the end of the day? You know, after they leave our barn, they are headed to the packing plant where they are processed into our favorite cuts, pork chops, ham, bacon. I'm a big fan of pulled pork, so coming from the pork shoulder. But regardless, that's where it's processed. And then from that facility, that product is moved from that facility to your grocery store. That's a pretty simple way to look at it. But as we found out this last spring, one little slowdown in that chain could really make a large conflict in the process. The food supply chain is is hugely important in something like this. Are your pigs being sold to a local processing plant? Are your products going nationally? Can you give us a sense of where your animals end up? As I said before, we're located in Dyke, Iowa, just west of Waterloo by about uh, 20 minutes. And then our pigs uh, from our farm are actually transported back to Illinois, where they're originally come from, to a packing plant out there 
the farmland plant down there in Monmouth, Illinois. So that's where our pigs are shipped to. And then from there, that system, yes, is a national food supply chain. And, and from that point forward, that product is shipped across the country and across the world. Sherry, Jared, thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. It was uh, great to visit with you. And I know I learned a lot. So, th- so thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having us. Hello and welcome to this episode of Outstanding in Their Field. My name is Will Fett, and I am the host of today's episode. With me today is Tara Norman, a teacher from Clark Elementary in Osceola, Iowa. And Tara was our Excellence in Teaching About Agriculture winner. Tara, how are you? I'm great, Will. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining us today. To kick us off, can you give us a little bit about your educational background and your professional training to become a teacher? Absolutely. So like Will said, my name is Tara Norman. I actually was born and raised right here around Southern Iowa in Van Wert, Iowa, but I went to Clark, which is actually where I came back to teach at. When I graduated from Clark, I started my education at Southwestern Community College in Creston, and then I transferred to Northwest Missouri State University in Maryville, Missouri. I received a degree in elementary education and my dual major in special education. I came back knowing that I wanted to teach around my hometown. I just didn't realize or know that I would actually be teaching in the school that I started at here at elementary. So I'm teaching in the elementary that I went to school in. I started teaching in third grade. I taught third grade for three years. And then last year, my principal asked me if I would go to second grade. So here I am loving the second grade world this year. That's excellent, Tara. So now you integrate agriculture kind of on a regular basis, but you kind of had to win some people over to your way of thinking. Tell us about what that process looked like. (laughs) Yeah, I am a farmer, if you need a little background about me, but I knew the importance of agriculture. And when I came back to Clark Elementary, I could tell we had a big gap in our agriculture knowledge and being a teacher and wanting to have lots of engaging lessons, I knew that agriculture could kind of fill those gaps and also make the engagement more fun. However, when I came back to Clark in my first year teaching, first year teachers are kind of looked down upon. I mean, they believe in you, but they don't know your full capability and you kind of have to show off your first year. So my first year, I proposed integrating agriculture within my whole grade level within my team and no one was really buying on within my team of five so I finally went to my principal and I said look agriculture is what I love and I really think our students need to know more about agriculture I promise the standards will be there but I really want to do this if this is something that you support my first principal uh she wasn't as supportive as what I would like but so finally I just started inviting her in I said, here, I'm going to do a lesson on whatever it was that day. Watch for the agriculture and see if you really even see a split or she was worried that I was going to get away from the standard and not stay within our standards and be able to integrate agriculture. So I first started off small. 
was just integrating read alouds and kind of having small conversations. And then she was like, oh, okay, that kind of worked, which I knew it would. But she, she finally got more comfortable. And when I started doing my larger projects and making them actually like our assessments, but integrating agriculture, she was more supportive. Then I ended up getting some grants to do bigger and larger projects that integrated my whole grade or even kind of the whole school. And that was my big first unit, which is my chick hatching unit. I'm not kidding. The whole school came alive when we were hatching baby chicks in this classroom. And when I involved the school and the community and had a lot of parent support, there was no question that she had to jump on the bandwagon and support me as well. I actually got a new principal this year and my last year, and she had some agriculture background. So when I kind of told her what I did and what I wanted to do, she didn't question all. She said, do what you need to do. And I believe in you that you'll be able to stay with your standards. So Jody has been able to support me. I definitely went more deeper last year just because this year is a little crazy, but I still have the support and I, I love having the support. Uh, such a cool story of how you were able to showcase how agriculture could be integrated. For those not familiar with education, could you give us a little bit of a, an understanding of what is an educational standard and maybe an example of how you would integrate agriculture? Absolutely. So educational standards come from the state that you are teaching in. So we receive our standards that we need to cover from the state of Iowa. We have standards for every subject, such as reading, writing, math, science, social studies. And we take those standards and we decide on priority standards and non-priority standards. Priority standards we have to teach and we have to assess on. And non-priority standards we just have to integrate within our lessons or our small groups. So the tricky part is taking what you want to teach within your agriculture and finding a standard where you can use agriculture or an agriculture topic or a read aloud, but you still have to practice the skill. So one example in social studies, I can't recite the actual standard because no teacher can, but one of the standards was comparing historical changes throughout our world. One of the topics that we chose to compare were things like how automotives have changed how technology has changed, how wardrobe has changed. And of course, I, sitting in the back of the room, was like, hey, let's in incorporate agriculture, how agriculture has evolved and changed. So when we taught that unit, we plugged in agriculture as a topic, and kids learned how a long time ago agriculture was done. I mean, we were using horses and machinery that didn't have engines. So then I brought in some handheld tools that farmers used a long time ago, and I showed how it has evolved a lot. Then we also brought in from our extension office, the virtual, the goggles that we put on and you could see inside of a combine. So they kind of had that experience of, wow, this is a lot different. I'm just sitting here watching controls instead of actually being out with my corn knife, chopping down corn. So it's just little things like that. And it doesn't just happen. Like a lot of times I had to, at the beginning, I had to think about what I actually knew and what was in my schema of agriculture and what I was comfortable teaching. And then I just tried finding ways to be like, oh, this would be a good connection. Or, oh, I have a read aloud about this topic. 
So it doesn't just come naturally. You kind of have to think about it. But that's a couple of ways that I, I look at it. I think about the standard. I listen to my team. And then I think about a topic or a unit that I could cover and integrate agriculture. That's a perfect example. And it definitely does seem like it would be pretty natural. Can you give us an idea of you're a second grade teacher now? What's your current role, your responsibility? What does a typical day look like for a second grade teacher? <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm glad you asked. So we start our days at 7:45 with kids entering our room. And kids come in, we have like a morning meeting time. And believe it or not, this is our first year of like an actual blocked out time for every classroom in our school to host a morning meeting to where we do a greeting, a sharing, an activity, and then a morning message. I've actually loved morning meeting time because this is a time where standards don't have to be involved. It's kind of a free-for-all time. It's 20 minutes. So I've actually found a lot of my topics and a lot of my sharing and activities have been kind of agriculture related. Not all the time, but definitely more than. We follow through our day with some writing. We go to a specials where we have guidance, music, art, technology, or PE. During those specials, Two out of the five days, I actually get a prep where I'm planning next week's lessons. I'm also virtual teaching right now due to the pandemic. So I have to have a week's worth of supplies ready to go every Friday for the next week. But three out of the five days, we attend PLC, which for non-teachers, PLC is just like a time where we go down and meet with our administration and our success coaches, and we work as a team to plan out the next units for reading, math, and writing. And then I continue coming back to specials when my kids return to my class, and I teach an hour of reading core with reading groups. Kids go to lunch and recess. I have a quick lunch, and then I go out to recess with them and play in the snow. And then we come back in, and we end our day with a big math block of math core, math groups. And then we have science and social studies to end our day. It's pretty crazy. The kids are definitely different this year. We have to wear masks here at school. So the environment's just a little bit different, but it is a very fast paced, nonstop day. And my classroom looks destroyed every night after I make piles of things that I haven't got to put away. But um, I would change it. And we love being hands-on. So there's stuff out all the time of manipulatives and different things that we're using to help us learn. I'm exhausted just listening to you describe that, but it sounds fantastic. Yeah, it really is. It's very exhausting. I can tell you if uh, if at 310, if you're not completely exhausted, you probably didn't work hard enough or you didn't have kids in your classroom because you don't leave school unless you feel completely exhausted and no voice. <laughs> Now, you mentioned the school day wraps up at 310, but you carry it beyond that. You do an agricultural club. Tell us about that. Yeah. So this year looks a little bit different. Unfortunately, we're not able to have the agriculture club hosting after school like I have in the past, but we are a leader in me school. And this all stemmed from being a leader in me school where the three through fifth grade teachers got to host a 30 minute club based on their interests or hobbies. And the kids got to take a survey of their top three clubs they wanted to be in. And when my kids came to me, I had a range of third through fifth graders, a lot of Aggies, as I like to call them, kids who know some about agriculture, 
but the majority of my club was kids that I have actually had before or kids that just knew me from our agriculture activity or from something else in our community. So a lot of kids joined that didn't know anything about agriculture. It was actually really awesome. And it was really cool because I had half a club that knew agriculture and knew some topics and lived on farms. And I had another half of the club who had a very diverse background. We have a very large Hispanic population here. And half of my first year ag club was Hispanic. And it was just, it was awesome to have that diversity within our club. So it started off as just the 30 minutes once a month. But agriculture is so large and our projects are so big that we were never finding time to actually go full force and full teaching in our projects. We weren't able to take them to where we wanted them to be. So I posed to our principal if we could actually just meet after school. And she was like, I don't see why not as long as the parents approve of it. So I sent home parent approvals to all of the kids currently in my ag club. And that was two years ago. And they all agreed, of course. So we started hosting agriculture club outside of school and agriculture club would come up here and we would continue whatever our month lesson was during school. We would continue it and usually finish up the actual project side of it. Like I said, this year has been a little bit different and we haven't been able to host agriculture club outside of school just because of COVID and switching classrooms. We're trying to limit all of the switching so I've just been kind of trying to stay in contact with Ag Club. I shared with them that we got our hydroponic unit from a recent grant. And I hope that here soon, we are going to be able to have like a couple of the kids come up at a time and help me with the unit and maybe not the whole group. So this year is a little bit different, but normally we would meet once a month after school, sometimes twice if we had a big project that we wanted to finish or we were getting ready for our family night, we knew we needed to meet twice a month. But it's a lot of fun to actually meet after school and spend some time with these kiddos and just have fun learning about agriculture. That's awesome. And one of the things that you have done in the past with your ag club is an animal ID activity. Tell us a little bit more about that. Absolutely. So we did an animal identification unit. I started off the lesson by each giving them an apple. And I said, okay, look at your apple. You know your apple. Some of our apples have short cores, long stems, discoloration. And then we put all of our apples in a pile, obviously before COVID. And I told the kids, I said, okay, go find your apple. And of course there was frustration and there was confusion. Like Miss Norman, how do you possibly think I were gonna find our apple out of this pile of apples <laughs> that all look the same? So that is where we led into the importance of animal identification. If you had a herd of black cattle or all white pigs, how would you be able to keep them separate knowing which animals you need to doctor or knowing which animals you need to sort off or what their dam was. So we talked about animal identification. We kind of talked about the main four. We gave the kids a paper plate. We learned about tagging, branding, ear notching with the swine. And then we learned about tattooing as well. So kids got to actually take a tag. They got to make their own brand with Sharpies and felt. They got pig ears and we taught them how to ear notch with the actual ear notching tools. With some of my older kids, I tried teaching them how to actually count ear notches. It's just a little bit difficult. I gave them the cheat sheet and my FFA kids from the um, high school chapter was over here. And I actually had a kid who had an SAE project with swine. So he was able to kind of coach the kids along on how to count the ear notches. But then they also were able to tattoo. 
So it was just a really awesome lesson. We took that lesson and we had a leadership day in our school about two weeks later after we learned that lesson about animal identification. So we actually presented it to our community and we let the community create their own tattoo and we showed them how to ear notch and we showed them how to tattoo rabbits and different animals and use the tattoo gun to create their like first initial and then their number. It was just a really fun hands-on lesson that easily could have been a worksheet that we switched up and we made it totally hands-on. And so applicable, I'm assuming that could lead into future conversations about record keeping and tracking those animals' health records, which is all very important, especially in the swine industry, when you have to really pay attention to what nutrition or antibiotics or anything that, that individual animals are receiving for their health care. Absolutely. My ad club was kind of split of students who knew nothing about agriculture or animals and students who knew a lot. My extension rep from the extension office here in Osceola, we kind of partnered together. I would teach the main lesson to everyone just so there was no gaps. But when it came down to kind of diving in a little bit deeper, she would go off with the more what I would call Aggie students. And she actually dived deeper into keeping animal records and how to choose tattoos, ear notches, animal tags that weren't super long that we could easily look at, we could easily read. We also practiced making the tags look nice, crisp, and clear. And then we talked about withdrawal times from vaccinations that we were doing and how we have to watch when we're going to be slaughtering and our withdrawal times so that the more advanced agriculture students actually talked about that and learned the importance that if we were to lose a tag, this would be really, really important. So we need to have permanent identification and we can use non-permanent identification like our tags, but having an ear notch or a tattoo can further our identification and make sure that we don't lose those records on that specific animal. Previously, you mentioned the changes in agriculture over time and animal ID has changed as well. We've gone from physical markers to tags to tattoos in some cases. And now we're on to electronic identification systems with implanted chips or other of tracking. So really, it's amazing to think about how agriculture has changed over the years and how you can carry these conversations with your students into opportunities to continue to explore that learning. Yeah, that's a really great point. We actually took last Christmas and we made some dog and cat toys for our local animal shelter. And that was one thing that the animal shelter kind of talked to us about and that asked us to put on our flyer was about the microchipping of animals. And one of my ag students said that he was reading something or looking at something that his dad had at home where they were actually chipping some dairy cattle that came into the milking carousel. So it was a really cool connection to see those sparks and the text-to-text -text connections, which is one of our standards. So it was really cool to see those kids applying a text-to-text -text connection with something that they saw at home with our units that we were talking about in agriculture. Excellent. Now, another activity that you've done with your ag club was an ag family night. And sounds like that was a lot of fun. Tell us a little bit more about that. That was an amazing opportunity. Iowa Select reached out to the FFA club. And of course, Brandy Boyd wanted to include me in this project. 
But Iowa Select was going to donate pork loins, but they wanted it to be to where we would be able just to feed people of, of a free of cost. So they gave us pork loins and then they also gave us like a 200, I can't remember how much dollar stipend to buy things like paper products and our sides and the condiments and the drinks and all that good stuff. So when it was choosing the hosting location, Brandy said, oh my gosh, would this be something that your ag club would be interested in doing? And we, of course, jumped with joy, absolutely. So we had an agriculture family night that was open to our whole community. We had no idea if five people or 500 were gonna show up, but when the doors opened, we had 250 people from our community joining us on Ag Family Night. And I'm just gonna throw a little tidbit in here that the family night before our agriculture family night was just a normal family night and they only had 35 people. So we were ecstatic that 250 people joined our Ag Family Night. Of course, many of the families were the students of the Agriculture Club and the FFA, but they also brought a lot of families that were not a part of our club's family base. So during that night, we fed them a free meal sponsored by Iowa Select. We had a pork loin and a couple different sides. And then my kiddos, I asked Brandy, I said, do you want your FFA to run the stations and the different things that the families are gonna see and participate in? And she said, no. Let the ag club do it. I mean, they are little kids and they are hosting a family night. So my kids were tasked with creating five different stations that evolved around pork, swine production. We kind of had some just agriculture stations too. One of the stations was showing off their animal handling systems that we had just created about a month before where we had done a Temple Grandin research unit. Now, a lot of our handling facilities were mainly based for cattle, but some of our kids actually created some different farrowing crates and facilities for pig barns. So we showed off those. One of the other kids, they wanted to make swine hats. So we made some swine hats for the little kids. And of course, during that, we played some different games where they had to match the animal sounds to the animal. We also talked about produce and where it comes from. So they had a bunch of cards and they had to sort the different things into farm, natural resources, grocery store, or factory. And we actually asked our parents to participate and it was kind of fun seeing some of the parents putting some of the products in store and then seeing my third graders tell them that this product came from a store, but it actually came from a farm first. So many fun teaching moments during that night and to see the kids light up and take complete ownership of their station. We were talking about teamwork skills. We solved a lot of problems that night when some of the kids had forgot some of their responsibilities or had forgotten a small minor detail. So I had third graders doing things that adults would normally do on their own. So it was a really big opportunity where they could take the lead. But thanks to Iowa Select, we hosted an amazing family night. And so often we think about education needing to be an emotional experience that it sounds like you're really creating a fun, emotionally positive environment for your students to learn. Absolutely. It's all about the connection. That's so awesome. 
So Tara Norman doing incredible things with her elementary classroom. You could learn a thing or two from her. I could learn a thing or two from her. And that's what this podcast is all about, bringing the best practices to uh, listeners all across Iowa and across the United States. Tara, thanks again for being with us. Thank you again, Will. Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, visit iowaagliteracy.org. Remember, too, to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service and learn more in the show notes. For now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field. Outstanding in their field.